When they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need not fear any evil, for you are with us. And you call us by name, and you minister to our souls that are often weary and overwhelmed. We praise you this morning because you are the Almighty God who is over all of your creation. We praise you because you are beautiful beyond all things and all people and all places. We praise you this morning for the beauty of your creation. We praise you this morning that you alone are our deliverer, the one who from all eternity has chosen us and known us by name, the one who is faithful to your promises and good to all. We thank you that you are holy, 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 that you are immortal and invisible, that you are our joy and our strength and our King. We thank you that you have loved us, that you have stooped down and condescended to have a covenant relationship with us. We thank you that you are majestic in power, and yet you are mindful of your people, even knowing the number of hairs on our head. We thank you that you are named above every other name, that you alone are omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, that you alone are a prince of peace who leads us beside quiet waters when we're walking through suffering or battling against sin or weary in service. We thank you that you have given us the word of truth, that we don't have to believe the lies that we're so prone to believe that you have revealed yourself to us through the Holy Scriptures. We thank you that you are wise, and when we need wisdom, we only have to ask, and you will give us wisdom from above. We thank you that you have promised that even now you reign from Mount Zion, the city of the living God, where one day we will join an innumerable number of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that we will worship the triune God. That we will praise you, Father, and your beloved Son, our Lord and Savior. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will sing forever the song of the Lamb. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to remember who we are. We are sinners who have been saved and made saints, and yet we still sin. And we need you to uphold us and give us strength this day that we might walk in your ways. We thank you that you have promised to strengthen us. And we pray this morning and this afternoon that you would help us to learn well the truth that will help us encounter these five lies we're looking at this weekend that we might leave here worshiping you more deeply and richly and working for your glory alone and witnessing for your great name. It's in the name of your Son that we ask these things. Amen. Last night, if you were with us, I know a couple of you have come in this morning and I'm eager to meet you and get to know you better, but last night in our opening session, we looked at the beginning two lies of the five that we're looking at this weekend. Number one, we looked at our ways are better than God's ways. And number two, we looked at the lie that we have to look like her in order to be beautiful. And hopefully around your tables and your small groups, you were able to tease out a little bit what her looks like in your life who it is that you're comparing yourself to. Some of you had great answers, uh, even comparing ourselves to our younger selves and comparing ourselves to our peers and comparing ourselves, of course, to what the world holds out before us to be true beauty, which we looked at in the Word of God is not true beauty at all. That true beauty actually comes from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's only in Christ that we are made beautiful. But this morning, I want to move us ahead to look at the next three, and actually final three lives, because in our final session today, we're going to take a good long look at the gospel. But this morning, we will look at uh, lie number three, our worth, beauty, and significance are defined by whether or not a man loves us. 
Line number four, our significance is based on our success as defined by our superiors. And line number five, if we had what she has, then we would be more satisfied, significant, and successful than we are now. So I want to ask a couple of questions just to get us started this morning that you can be thinking about during our session. Number one, how does our culture perpetuate the lie that our worth is based on whether or not a man loves us? So think about popular songs, think about TV shows, think about movies, think about social media. How does our culture perpetuate the lie that our worth is based on whether or not a man loves us. Consider women you know who have been devastated by breakups, divorce, difficult marriages, and singleness because they believed this lie. I want you to have those things, kind of uh, just thinking through those as we're talking through this first lie this morning. And I want to take us to a place in scripture, perhaps you've been several times, maybe not many times at all, but turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 1 through 17, where we learn about a woman named Abigail who had a very difficult marriage. And we're going to read this passage together this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 25. We'll begin in verse 2. There was a man whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, and you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited, and Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears? and give it to men who come from I don't even know where. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now know this, and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master in his house, and he's such a worthless man that one can't even speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys and said to her young men, go before me, I come after you. But she didn't tell her husband Abel. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, David and his men came down toward her and met them. And David said, surely in vain, have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, and nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he's returned me evil for good? God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. But when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before him on her face and bowed to the ground and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears. 
and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, as the Lord lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. So Abigail here, and this passage goes on. We could read the rest of chapter 25, but you get the sense of what's going on here. Abigail is in a very difficult marriage. And her husband was a fool. In fact, Nabal in the Hebrew means fool. And so it's uh, ironic that his name is Nabal. But I want you to notice a couple of different things that are going on here. In the midst of a very difficult marriage, Abigail is a woman of wisdom and discernment. She still did what was right, even though her husband was a fool. She prepared what David, who was the king, had asked for her and sent it on ahead. And when she met David, she was very respectful. But the reason she was able to do this was because of her discretion and her honesty and her humility and her peace and her wisdom in keeping David from doing something that he would actually later regret. And David rewarded her with these words. Look at verse 35. Go up in peace to your house. I have obeyed your voice and granted your petition. David lost no time in recognizing that Nabal was a fool and Abigail was a woman of discretion. He knew a worthy woman when he saw one and he knew that Abigail was worthy. Now something happens to Nabal. Look at verses 36 through 38. Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king, and his heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing until the morning. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Now David lost no time in recognizing the Lord's vengeance upon this fool, and he actually sent and had Abigail brought to him to become his wife. But I want to ask you a question. What if Abigail had found her significance and her worth and her beauty in her husband? She certainly would not have responded, would she, the way that she did. The reason why she was able to serve God, the king of kings, by serving David, the national king, was because she feared God even more than she feared her husband. She went into her relationship with David the same way she could go into the marriage with David with a servant's heart because she derived her significance not from her husband, but from the Lord. And I have seen repeatedly over the many years I've been in women's ministry that when we try to gain our security and our significance from men, we miss the opportunity to know the peace and power of Christ in our lives. It doesn't matter whether we're young and whether we're seeking relationships and we're in a relationship with our boyfriend and we think that our boyfriend is the all in all because he makes us feel good or whether we're a woman who's married and we're upset when our husband doesn't treat us the way that we want him to, because perhaps lurking behind that frustration and irritation and anger is that belief and that lie that our satisfaction and security and significance comes from the way a man treats us, or the woman who is devastated from a hard marriage or divorce or widowhood or just singleness because she believes that it's better, that her significance is greater, that her security is more, that her satisfaction is better from those men. And she quits lifting her eyes to Christ. So I want us to remember that it is only in Christ alone that our significance and satisfaction and security must rest. When our husbands or other men in our lives or our boyfriends fail to be the men they should be, we can look to Christ 
to meet our needs and measure our worth. When we recognize that our worth and our significance and our beauty are not defined by a man's love for us, we realize that we are not less than because of our husband's addiction or adultery or unfaithfulness in another way or anger, but by the Holy Spirit, we have the capacity to actually respond in a wise, godly, humble way, just like Abigail did. Christ alone defines our worth and our significance. Well, if you have a past of believing this lie, it is not uncommon that you have made choices that have been unwise in relationships with men. And oftentimes, we as women bring things into our adult lives as we look back at our younger years and we think we've messed up and we've blown it and we've sinned. Perhaps it's hard to believe at any time, but perhaps most particularly during our younger years, that the gospel defines our worth when we fall into sexual sin. And so I want to take us to John chapter 4 this morning, because it's a great temptation when we think that our significance and our security comes from a relationship with a man to fall into sexual sin. And then I have found, in talking with many women over the years, that it's hard for her to ever believe that God truly forgives her for that sin. So I want to look at John chapter 4 and John chapter 8 this morning to encourage us. In John chapter 4, we read about the Samaritan woman at the well. And I want to begin in verse... Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, weary as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. I want to stop for just a second and give two little notes, commentary notes here. First of all, Jews did not go through Samaria. Jews would do whatever they could to avoid going through Samaria because in Samaria they believed that they would be contaminated from the people who lived there of mixed ancestry. So they avoided at all costs going through Samaria. So it's very interesting that Jesus is going through Samaria. But the other thing I want you to notice is that he's sitting beside a well. Most men didn't just hang out at the wells where the women drew water. So it's very interesting that Jesus is in Samaria at a well at the sixth hour, which if you have a little note here in your Bibles, that's about the hour of noon. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Okay, now I want to stop again, because I want you to note that this woman has gone to the well at noon. He didn't go to the well at noon. It was hot. It was much harder to draw water at noon than it was at any other time of the day. But this woman didn't want to meet any other woman at the well. She, we'll find out in a couple of verses, has a tremendous amount of sexual sin in her past. And so she didn't want to be around other ladies. And so she had come to this well at noon in order to avoid anyone else from being there. The second thing I want you to notice from these verses is that Jesus is initiating a relationship with this woman. He's initiating being there. He went there to the well to meet this woman, and he is initiating a conversation with her. And he says, 
if you knew the gift of God, and you knew who it is asking, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. In other words, Jesus is offering this woman the gospel. Look at verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And you know, at this moment, this woman is thinking about her own sexual past. But she has no idea that the man in front of her, number one is Jesus, and she has no idea that the man in front of her knows her past. And you can even think of yourself in this position thinking, if you had a past of sin, and you had been hiding it from everyone, and you had come to the well at noon in shame so that nobody else would see you, you would be desperately wanting this water. You can almost hear her saying, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. She didn't want to be here in the first place. She never wanted to come back. She did not want anyone to know of her sin. So look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, and when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, and me. Now before we go on, I want to point out a couple of other things to you. When Jesus said to her, go call your husband, and she said, I have no husband, you can only imagine this woman who had come to the, new, the, the well at noon because she was living in shame and didn't want any other woman to know what she had done. You know that she thought right then that the offer of living water was off the table for her. That this man who had offered her living water, that this man who had said, I will give you living water and you will never be thirsty again, you can only imagine that she thought right then when he said to her, go call your husband, that that offer no longer stood true for her. But I want you to notice that Jesus knew everything about this woman's past. He knew all of the sexual sin, and he offered her the gospel, not in spite of it, but because of it. He reached out the offer of living water to her, even knowing all that she had ever done, and said, believe me, and offered her the truth. He is the Jew of all Jews, the Messiah, the Christ. And when he said to her, I who speak to you am he, you know that joy 
must have flooded her heart. Here is the Messiah who is offering her a sinner, one who knows everything she's ever done, and he still offers her living water. Well, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Here is a woman who went to the well at noon in her sin and her shame, not wanting any other woman to see her. And do you see what happens? She leaves her water jar behind, which is significant. She doesn't need that water jar anymore because Jesus has given her living water that will last for all of eternity. But look at what she does. She goes away into town. She goes to town. Remember, she didn't want to be seen. She was living in shame. But she went to town, and she said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? A heart that has been changed by the gospel is a heart that goes and proclaims the grace of Jesus Christ and the gospel to everyone around them because she is free from her past of sin and shame to go forth and say, Look, I know a man who knows everything I've ever done and he's offered me forgiveness and love and grace and I want you to know him too. Well, we don't just have John chapter 4 to remind us of the glorious truth of the gospel that our sexual sin is not the final word but that Jesus forgives us. We also see in John chapter 8 that our sexual sin does not define us. In John chapter 8 we read a little story about a woman caught in adultery. We'll pick up with verse 2. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Here is the only one in all the earth, the only one who has the right and the power to judge, the judge of all things. And he does not condemn her but offers her grace and forgiveness and then tells her in light of that grace, in light of the deliverance he provides through the gospel, to go and sin no more. Our sexual sin does not define us. Our Savior does. What we have done with men in order to find our worth, security, and significance in the past is covered by the blood of the Lamb when we repent of our sin and turn to Christ in faith. He endured the casting of stones for us so that we might not die but have everlasting life. And in response to such grace, he calls us to go and sin no more. But going and sinning no more is very difficult to do, isn't it, in a broken world? In fact, it's absolutely impossible apart from Christ. So in Paul's letter to Titus, the apostle instructs this young pastor what it means to have a sound church. And in his letter, he talks to them 
of what it means to have people in your church that are mentoring other women. Melinda had a good question about this last night, about how we do mentoring in our church. But just turn over to Titus 2, for me, verses 4 and 5, because it's important if we're going to be women who are self-controlled and pure and not believing these lies that we're looking at this weekend, we need to have other women in our lives reminding us of the truth of the gospel. And in Titus chapter 2, we see that older women are assigned the task to teach younger women what it means to live a godly life. Titus chapter 2 verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. In a culture that teaches us that our significance and satisfaction and security comes from worldly beauty, or a relationship with a man, or how we come across as appealing. The older women in the church are tasked with a difficult responsibility to help younger women understand what it means to live a life of self-control and purity. Before we go on to our fourth lie, I just want to encourage those of you in the room that have had broken hearts because you believed the lie that your worth is based on whether or not a man loves you. Isaiah chapter 54, verses 4 through 8. Isaiah says, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth, for the Lord has called you. Like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you. The Lord, our Maker, is our husband. And in Him, we need not believe the lie that our worth or beauty or significance is defined by how our husband treats us or how other men love us. I want to move on to lie number four. Our significance is based on our success as defined by our superiors. And I just want to get us started by asking another question. In what area do you feel pressure to live up to certain expectations, either your own or another's? So be thinking about, as we discuss this next lie, in what area or areas do you feel pressure to live up to certain expectations, either your own expectations or another's. Here's another question. How have you come to rest in your accomplishments for your identity, and why is that problematic? How have you come to rest in your accomplishments for your identity, and why is that problematic? Whether it's as a student, a career woman, a wife, a mother, or even in a ministry role, we often believe the lie that our significance is based on our success. I'll put that lie two other ways just so you can get it in your mind. My appeal is based on my achievements. My appeal is based on my achievements. Or my worth is based on the worthiness of my work, and that worthiness is determined by the world. In our culture today, beauty is not just defined by appearance. But our worth is also defined by our achievements. You may not be able to relate to the specifics of some of the women who will be discussing around your table, but think about when you've blown a deadline for your boss, 
or didn't meet the expectations your leader had for you, or didn't get an A on a paper you had poured your heart into, or didn't receive a good job from someone you were hoping would notice. We are tempted constantly to define our significance by our achievements. And so I want to take us to a couple places in scripture that help us stop doing this. If you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. who are in Christ Jesus are new creations and are beautiful in Christ. We already have perfection and power and position and prestige. Let me read to you from Hebrews while you're turning to 2 Corinthians. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. The author of Hebrews says, But this man, speaking of Jesus, but this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God the Father, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now that should free us because we often think that we have to be perfect. But the Bible tells us that we're already perfect in the eyes of God. And the reason why is because of the verse I just read to you. Jesus has offered himself, and listen to what it says, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We already Positionally, are perfect. Are we practically perfect? No. We're still on this side of glory. But we have the position of perfection in Christ. And one day, when Jesus comes again, we will be made perfectly holy. But even now, we can know that we have perfection in Christ. Are you at 2 Corinthians chapter 12? So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we also realize that we have power. But it's not the kind of power that our world tells us we should have. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul tells us all of these troubles that he's had. You're thinking, Paul, this is a lot that you have had to deal with. And you're thinking he might want to hide some of these weaknesses, but look at what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Well, let's back up. Uh, let's back all the way up to verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, wait a second. We have been taught since the time we were little in this world to hide our weaknesses and highlight our strengths, right? We've been taught to hide our weaknesses and highlight our strengths. But look at what Paul is telling us. God's word says to highlight his strength by not hiding our weaknesses. The Bible says to highlight God's strength by not hiding our weaknesses. So Paul says, I take pleasure, chapter 12, verse 10, in infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, distresses, for Christ's sake. He doesn't take pleasure in it for his sake. He doesn't take pleasure in it because it's good. He takes pleasure in it because when he is weak, he magnifies the strength of Christ and the power of Christ. I've met with women over the years who were ashamed of their present lives. Girl power hadn't worked for them. Deserted dreams, messy marriages, prodigal children, 
crashed careers, fallen finances, all of them had come crashing to the ground and they were filled with shame. They needed someone to remind them that their identity is not in their weakness. Their identity is in Christ. Those who are in Christ have perfection, but they also have power, and that means they can highlight their weaknesses in order to magnify God's strength. But that's not all. We don't just have perfection and power. The Bible also tells us that we already have a position in Christ that is a beautiful one. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus, and he spends the first half of his letter telling them of all the blessings they have as believers. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he moves them on to how they're to live in light of that. But I want us to look just at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Just let this wash over you this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. As daughters of the King of Kings, as those who are already in Christ, you and I already have a position. The world holds out before us to seek our position in all kinds of other roles and other things. But the Bible tells us that we already have perfection, we already have power, and we already have a position in Christ. And that's not all. One last thing, we also have prestige. We are royalty in Christ. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 6. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, we see the amazing truth. And actually, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Look at who we are. Remember, as you're reading Peter, who Peter was. I always think when I'm reading first and second Peter, this is Peter. This is Peter who thought he didn't need to be claimed by Christ. This is Peter who denied Christ three times, thinking he never would. This is Peter who denied Christ three times, but then had breakfast with Jesus on the banks of the Sea of Galilee and three times affirmed that he loved Jesus in light of the three denials and the faithlessness that he had expressed earlier. This is Peter, who knows the grace and forgiveness of God. And look at what he tells us. Look at who he tells us we are. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We see that beautiful thread that runs through Genesis to Revelation of God's covenant promise to us. I will be your God and you will be my people. And here we see it here in the book of 1 Peter. We are God's people who have received mercy. 
I remember last night I took it to Hebrews chapter 4, and he, the author of Hebrews reminded us that when we approach the throne of grace, what will we find? Mercy and grace to help in time of need. And here Peter affirms that same truth. So what do we do when we are tempted to believe this lie? Well, we remember that we already have perfection, power, position, and prestige in our beloved Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to turn over to looking at our final lie. I want to ask, just as we begin to look at this, when was the last time you compared yourself with another person? When was the last time you compared yourself with another person? Perhaps you envy your best friend who just got engaged or pregnant. Maybe you covet your friend's big, beautiful home. Perhaps you compare your hosting skills to your friend's ability to entertain. Maybe you envy the family next door who seems to have a successful marriage and family life. Perhaps you covet the new position and salary your coworker just received. Maybe you compare yourself to how physically fit and slim another woman in your church is, or as we talked about last night in our small groups, how physically fit and thin you used to be. Or perhaps you are envious of how well the other women your age is aging, how her children are walking with the Lord, and how many grandchildren she has. All of us struggle with comparing ourselves to others. And so I want to look at the lie, and then I want to look at how we battle this temptation. The comparison lie goes something like this. If I had what she has, then I would be more satisfied, more significant, and more successful than I am now. If I had what she has, then I would be more satisfied, significant, and successful than I am now. And the Bible talks to us a lot about how to overcome this. But I want to take us to a story that perhaps you've never thought about in relation to this, to 1 Chronicles chapter 17. 1 Chronicles chapter 17. In 1 Chronicles chapter 17, we won't read all of the passage because it's, it's long and the story goes on for a couple of different chapters. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, we see that David desired in his heart to build a house for the Lord. That's a good thing, right? Think about someone today wanting to build a church building so that people can come and worship God. David had a good desire in his heart. He wanted to build a place where people could come and worship. But that wasn't what God had for David to do. And originally, Nathan the prophet supported his heart's desire but God actually came to Nathan and said, Nathan, you need to go to David, and you need to tell David that it's not his job to build me a house. That's actually going to be someone else's job. The Lord had made a covenant with David, but the Lord's covenant with David, although significant in Scripture, and it's another unfolding of the covenant of grace in Scripture, it does not ever promise that David would be the one to build the temple. It would be for David's son, Solomon, to do. But David really had this desire to do this thing. So how did David move from having this desire to build this house, this temple for the Lord God? How did he move from that desire to not demanding that God let him do that, but to actually opening his hands and saying, Okay, Lord, not my will but your will be done. If this isn't what you have for me, if this is actually the job that you have for my son, then by all means, I want your will to be done. How did David move from a desire going awry, a desire not being met, to opening his hands and saying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. This is very important for us to see because we oftentimes desire to do something or to have something, and God gives, that, God gives that job or that blessing to our sister instead. We oftentimes want to do something or have something, 
And God gives that blessing to our sister instead. It's very easy when that happens for us to compare and covet and get really mad. But the Bible calls us to respond differently. And David gives us a very good example of this. The first thing David did was to get on board with God's plan. Instead of throwing a pity party, he charged Solomon to build the temple. Look at 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 6. He charged Solomon to build the temple. In other words, he moved in his heart from desiring to build the temple himself to understanding that that wasn't what God had him to do. And so he got on board with God's plan, and he went to his son and said, You're the man for the job. Second, David got behind Solomon. Look at verse 11 of chapter 22 of 1 Chronicles. It would have been so easy for him to exit the scene. After all, he wasn't going to be the builder. But instead, he got engaged with the ministry of building because he wanted Solomon to succeed for God's glory. Look at verse 5. He wanted God's house to be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all the countries. He got behind Solomon. Number three, instead of letting Solomon fend for himself, he took great pains to provide Solomon with what he needed in order to be successful. Look at verse 14. He took great pains to do whatever it took, including bringing building supplies, to make sure that his son was successful. Remember, David wanted to do this. This was David's desire. It would have been so easy for him to have not gotten on board with God's plan, to have not gotten behind Solomon, to have not been for him but against him, to just have let Solomon fend for himself and try and figure it out on his own. But instead, he got behind him. Number four, instead of trying to start a building program of his own with his own followers, like, hey, Solomon, you build over there, and I'll build over here, and we'll see who does the better job. Instead, David actually rallied supporters to come alongside Solomon to help. Verses 17 and 18. Now that's astounding. It's one thing to say, okay, Lord, I get it. The job is not for me. It's another thing to actually rally supporters for the sister who's doing the thing you wanted to do. That's what David did. Finally, instead of thinking he was useless, which David easily could have done, he continued to disciple Solomon by charging him to set his mind and heart to seek the Lord, verse 19. I want to ask you a question. What if David, what if David had believed the lie that if he had the ministry Solomon had, he would be more satisfied, more significant, and more successful than he was? He would have missed the opportunity God gave him to encourage Solomon to edify Solomon, to equip his own son for the important task of building the temple by recognizing God's sovereignty and providence and by accepting it with gladness. He was able to actually become a vital part of Solomon's calling. He was able to participate by praying for Solomon and providing for many of his needs. And by doing this, he glorified God by contributing to the work that would magnify God's name through the temple in all the earth. That's amazing. Christ has given each one of us gifts. And Ephesians chapter 4 and chapter 2 tells us that these are gifts of grace. You and I didn't choose our gifts. We didn't earn our gifts. Our gifts have been given us from God, and they are gifts of grace. That means that the platforms God gives us are not for performing. They are for proclaiming 
the kingdom of God and teaching about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as well as for encouraging, equipping, and edifying the church. Like David, you and I may have it in our hearts to do something great for the Lord, but it may not be ours to do. It may be our sister who is called to do what we wanted to do. It may be our sister who is called or given the blessings, even blessings we've prayed for for years. But our response needs to be a heart filled with gratitude for God's great promises and faithfulness to us. Envy should give way to encouraging her Instead of secretly hoping she won't succeed, we should pray she will succeed for God's glory. Instead of carrying on with our own business, not giving her a second glance, we should take great pains to help her be fruitful and effective for the gospel. Rather than stealing any supporters she has, we should rally supporters to come alongside her. And rather than discourage her, we should encourage her to send her mind and heart to see the Lord. You and I know without the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, this is impossible to do because our hearts will always want our desires to be done. We will always want to be more satisfied, more significant, more successful than our sister. But with God's power, the Bible calls us to turn our hearts to the Lord and His ways so that we can encourage our sister to do the work of the Lord and cheer her on every step of the way and step out of the comparison cage. Before we wrap up this morning, I just want to close with the truth that comparing is not wise. Comparing is not wise. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul has a very powerful word for those of us who are tempted to compare ourselves with others. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He's talking about not classing themselves or comparing themselves with those who commend themselves. And then he goes on. Paul tells us that we should not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us. Not boasting in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we will be greatly enlarged by others in our sphere to proclaim the gospel and not to boast in another person's sphere of accomplishment. And then he says, Let him who glories, glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. That means that you and I must be wise by not comparing ourselves either by our own standards or among our friends or our sisters in Christ. And also, we should recognize and remain within the limits of the sphere where God has appointed us to be. Also, we should be hopeful that when we faithfully serve God in the sphere that He has called us to be and where He has placed us, he will ensure that we are fruitful and effective for the gospel there, in that place, as we keep our eyes focused on him. And finally, these verses remind us that we should never boast in another person's accomplishment, nor should we ever boast in our own, but only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. As we close this morning, if we're not careful, to take our thoughts captive to Christ, we will covet and compare. We will. Maybe you have believed the lie that if you had what your sister has, then you would be more satisfied, significant, or successful than you are now. Perhaps you sense a self-centered, isolated, competitive heart within you that keeps you from encouraging, engaging with, energizing another to do what God has called them to do, even if that means that you don't get the husband and children, the job, the ministry, or the contract that you wanted. But be encouraged to step out of that comparison cage into the power 
you have in Christ, the prestige you have in him, the position you have in him, and the power that he gives you so that you will be a woman of wisdom who works hard to lift high the name of Jesus and stops comparing yourself to others. Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful that your word gives us truth upon which we can focus as we battle these lives. Please help us to remember that our satisfaction and significance and security does not come from a man. Our worth is not based on how we appear in the eyes of our superiors. And please help us to remember that if we have what she has, we will not be more satisfied, secure, and significant. Because you alone are the one who sovereignly and providentially unfolds the plan that you have for our lives. And you have us just where you want us. Doing what you have called us to do. And may we remember to always magnify our weaknesses so that we can magnify your great strength. In Jesus' name.